This is the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless, a weekly podcast hosted by Chris Milson, a podcast to help break the stigma of mental health and to remind everyone that it is okay to be not okay, and to remind those that they are never alone. Please also note that Chris is not a psychologist or psychiatrist and is speaking from research and experiences. Trigger warning for those for the possible explicit content and language. What's up, Warriors, and welcome to another episode of the Mental Health Movement Podcast, Voice for the Voiceless. I am your host, Chris. Today, we have a very special guest. Um, She is somebody who wears many hats in the mental health community. Uh, She is not only a psychologist, she is also an author, certified life coach, and motivational speaker, and just an all-around incredibly accomplished human being. Uh, Please welcome uh, Dr. Cheryl Holmes. Cheryl, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I uh, When Sean reached out to me about um, possibly getting you on and uh, what I want on your website, and we just had a conversation, I'm like, man, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I talked to you and got to know you a little bit, you know, it's uh, always got to remember we're all human beings. You know, some are just in a different stage in their life, and uh it's really cool to see how many hats you do wear in this community because, you know, like I said, very accomplished. And I, I just love reading about you because it's just like, wow. It's like list after list. It's like, wow, okay, we're, nope, still not done. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone said um, recently, it takes two days to read her bio. It's just, but I, I think what it, one of the things that's really important, and that's why mental health is important as well, it's really honing into your mind and protecting it from the negativity. And when you do that, when you take the negativity out, there's space for so much positive things and we can do so much more. It's like the computer, when you erase some of the unused apps, you have the storage becomes em- empty and we can refill it with things that we really absolutely want and, and need. And that's useful to our lives and to others. I yeah. Love that. That's a, that's a good analogy because, uh, you know, there's, I feel like there's so much negative in this world as it is right now. And it's so hard to filter a lot of that out. So mm-hmm. being able to, I guess, channel your energy towards the more positive stuff. And like you said, you clear all those useless apps, those toxic relationships you have just to get in all that information, and all that positive energy that does surround us, even though if it's under a rock hidden somewhere, I mean, I always feel like there's always room to improve and always, uh, especially in the mental health community, just always uh, things to learn about. Yeah, and, and that's what we, we, we're aiming to do. That We understand that things are not happening to us, it's happening through us. And when we understand that, we, we kind of take ownership. Like I'm feeling the way I'm feeling because I'm thinking a certain way. And rather than try to alter the behavior, what I do is alter the way that I'm thinking. Every time you change the way that you're thinking, it affects the way that you feel, and then your behavior changes. So that's the process. It's the thinking, the feeling, and the behavior. Every single thing that we experience is a thought manifested. Right. Yeah. So if yeah. I can control, control that, um, even fear is a thought. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny that you said the life doesn't happen to us. It happens through us. Uh, heard something similar to that 
um, through another guest uh, who basically said the same thing, but she, the way that she worded it was, life doesn't happen to us, it happens for us. So mm-hmm. like you said, just kind of like manifesting that positive energy and being able to put yourself out there to the point of, you know, you want good things to come into your life. And obviously, as as you well know, is got to put in that work for that that positivity to come back. And mm-hmm. you know, just don't snap your fingers and it, it becomes a thing. It's one of those you have to put in so much work to get to a, a stable level of, of thinking and learning. Yeah, and that and that's that's if we do that on a daily basis, it really would help. If we if, if the little thing that we do is watch what we think, our life will be so much better. If we can watch what we think. And we sometimes you can't stop the thought from coming, but what you can do is stop yourself from keeping it there. So once you get a negative thought, it's like, hold on. For example, um, fear. Fear will come, every thought comes knocking. It has to knock before it enters. And so when it knocks, we have to decide whether or not we're going to let it in. And to let it in, it has to have a valid reason. So if I'm afraid of, you can hear a knock on the door, and your heart starts racing, your blood pressure is up, all of that, because you have a thought. You open the door and it's the pizza man and you realize, I just, <laughs> I just, I just went away, hyperventilating and all of that because of the thought. So then I can think all the time that every knock on the door is a pizza man, which would moderate how I feel and you're, you're in control. So that's one thing. We, we are looking for external ways to change how we feel, but a lot of it is internal. How am, am I processing the thoughts that, that I'm having? One of my favorite uh, acronyms for fear is face everything and rise. And I heard that I from like one, that. Of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite artists, Papa Roach, that I listened to. And just hearing it articulated like that and the way that you put it, I, I think uh, goes hand in hand with each other because Fear is something we always, I guess, are afraid that we can't control. Mm-hmm. But when you can start um, finding ways to control that fear, and like you said, it's thinking it's a pizza man every time, and that fear slowly starts to go away. Um, I feel like in order to overcome diversity, overcome adversity, is to face everything head on and just take it in and, I guess, uh, find a way to car- compartmentalize everything and uh, attack things, I guess, in whatever order. Uh, if that makes sense, I, I feel like I'm kind of yeah. No, no, no. That that's really true because the the anxiety. Every when you think about how we feel, all of that. If we can question it and have that conversation, because sometimes people think therapists don't get anxious we do get anxious but when the anxiety comes what i would do is say where are you coming from what's your reason to be here you know and what value do you have for me and if i can identify sometimes it's coming maybe i haven't eaten so you know my body is kind of out of whack but it's so it's it's finding it's asking the the thought the feeling where are you coming from sometimes you're just busy in your day and you're anxious you calm yourself down and it's just like where are you coming from what's your reason to be here so fear 
I'm afraid that, you know, I'll get fired today. Where is that coming from? Because I've been late for three times in a row. Have you spoken? So now we begin to talk to that thought of fear. But I spoke to the, the last two times. I spoke to my manager. My manager said that they understood, you know, and I explained that I might have been late. So I'm now negotiating. I'm not negotiating. I'm now talking to the thought and finding reason. And so every time I can um, find a reason, it diminishes the amount of anxiety that I have. Because again, anxiety is a way of thinking. I am thinking I'm in trouble. And my body, my natural body, my heart rate, my, and my mind, everything is following after the thought. So now I call myself and say, hey, where are you coming from? And a lot of times, you know, today I had, um, this is my third doctoral degree, and they're really pushing me, pushing me to, to um, invent something. And so when I, I knew I had the, the meeting, I forgot, but I had the meeting at 3.30, I felt myself being so anxious. And that, so again, I had to talk to myself, what are you anxious about? What is going to happen in this meeting? I'm going to meet my chair, and my chair is going to say, I need this, this, and this. And after they say that, I am going to go and do it. So that minimized the, the anxiety in there. And sometimes you have to say it over and over. But it's saying, what, um, what, where is this coming from? What is the reason for it to be there? Is there a valid reason? Because some fear is good fear. If I am at the edge of a mountain um, or on top of a bridge, I can't, uh, the fear of falling is real. I need to move from there. But fear is supposed to be protective, not destructive. You know, you, uh, so you mentioned there's, there's two things in there that I, I wanted to touch on and one of the biggest ones that I love that you touched on right away was people have that misconception that therapists don't have anxiety or get anxious. And it's, it's crazy to me that there's still that kind of like assumption like, oh, well, they're therapists. They don't, they don't go through what I'm going through. And it's just like, they're human beings. You're a human being. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. It blows my mind the the misconception of just, I guess, therapy in general is, you know, people don't look at therapists and, and I don't know where this mentality came from, but people just assume that therapists don't go through their own battles. And that's something um, with the therapist that I have now and the one that I had when I was living in New Jersey, um, just some of the stuff that we were talking about, what they, they, what they cover, it's just like, I couldn't imagine you not having your own therapist. Or you yes. know, having your own way of uh, venting and having help for yourself, and I, I always say, man, like therapists need like a whole new level of respect for people because you guys are superheroes, and I and I genuinely mean that. Um, and the second thing I wanted to touch on was I really like um, your mention of anxiety and just like how to ground yourself. Because, you know, obviously there's the grounding technique that mm -hmm. nearly everybody who has anxiety knows. But then there's the level of getting through anxiety, like you were saying, like, where is this stemming from? And mm -hmm. the, the bridge analogy was great because I always feel like if I'm ever feeling anxious, it's always like on the edge. And it's just like, OK, how do I get from not jumping or not falling? And how do I go mm -hmm. back to the ground? And I feel like a lot of people with anxiety. uh struggle with that jumping or falling feeling because it's just like 
jumping and falling is so easy having that like it, it, it is. Back, you know it, yeah yeah and think about it is sometimes you look down and you look around and you're not at the edge and that's really important you're not there you're not physically there so if i am there are times where at the at the verge it may just be i didn't pay my my uh my light bill i haven't paid it for seven months so the person at the door is the person coming to cut the lights off so that anxiety but but the anxiety i'm feeling i can say it's coming because of this now what do i do I, I tell my, because I recognize that's where it's coming from, I love what that you said, you confront it. You, you open the door and you talk to the light people. Hey, I've been having some hard times. Can I get some more time? And they may say no. And if they say no, you go to Walmart and you buy some candles and you hold on with your candles or your lamp uh, until you can get the money to do it. But what most people would do would be to hide and now, because what happens is subconscious, it feeds us memories, when memories which is tied to emotion of times, maybe stories that we've heard vicariously that the anxiety is coming through, stuff like that. So when I'm faced with a situation, it's not just me physically, it's everything that I've read, everything that I've seen, and so putting that in perspective is so important. The grounding is so important to be able to interrupt this and say, hold on, hold on, hold on, heart rate and blood pressure. Where is this coming from? And, and coming into solution. Now, people would say that in those times, the, it feels so overwhelming that I can't get to that place. And that's why one of the things that we would tell you to do is do the deep breathing because that it, it causes a sense of realization in the body enough for the, the, the thinking fluid to get to the brain so that you go into solution mode. Right. So it's, yeah, it's really important for us to ascertain where is this coming from? It might be my negligence, but when even I, as I, I accept that as something that I've done, I say, how can I move forward? I'm, I'm going to be embarrassed that they took the lights and whatever, and I like to go to the other. I'm alive. You know, things can be different. You know, all of those things. I'm fussing about my shoes so that you don't have a feet. And really talking to yourself to be able to work through those panic attacks. That's really important. Right. And, you know, um, when I first started out this, this journey, just trying to advocate for for mental health and everything um i i think a lot of people uh don't put too much thought into how much breathing really does help especially in like anxiety it's just like uh at the beginning of this journey i was just like okay well you know just take a couple deep breaths and everything but there's a technique to it and when i started yeah. learning the technique it's like wow like that's that's outstanding yeah. and it is you add that grounding technique to it and it's just a game changer. It's like, what anxiety? Anxiety doesn't exist. It's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what, yeah, that's what even I would do. It, and if you look at babies, babies breathe really well. They, because it's, it's the expansion of the stomach area where the, it flattens the diaphragm. So when you say to people, have a deep, take a deep breath, their shoulders are moving. So they do, 
but that's not a deep breath. If you put your hand on the stomach, on your stomach, and you take a deep breath, it it goes, it gets big, it gets bigger. And you hold that because the air is going all the way inside and giving you that sense of relaxation and coming up. And if you can do that, it sounds really simple, but this is what I do. It, no matter where I am, I know if I can breathe and I can take those deep breaths, my thinking changes. The sense of anxiety minimizes. So yeah, the breathing and knowing how to do it while flattening the diaphragm, which looks like a half a grapefruit, really flattening. And a really easy way to do it is that the chest should not move. The stomach area should get bigger as you inhale. So it's full of air and then you take your time and, and let it out. That would be, that's the, that's a miracle dust. That's, that's interesting. I have never heard the, the stomach portion of that. So that was really helpful. Um, next time I have a, a high anxiety, I'll definitely remember this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, um, that helps. Mm-hmm. So I just had a, a couple questions I had written down for you and just uh, just to get our listeners to uh, know a little bit more about you. So what brought you into the mental health field and how long have you been practicing your profession? So I think uh, my bachelor's degree is in psychology. So it was either psychology or um, law. <laughs> Crazy difference. But um the mental health piece, I think I seriously got into it um, after going through a divorce because I felt I was not prepared for it. I got married really young and I really honestly believe in forever, meaning forever. Right. And then I found during that time, during the, the course of what was going on in my relationship, I was losing weight and the piece that no one tells us is that um, therapy is also preventative. It is not something that you do when you're in trouble. The truth is the more we go when we're mentally healthy, the less we would need it when we're mentally ill. So going through that process, it drained me of everything. It, 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 it caused me to think um, I'm not, I'm not good enough. You know, all those thoughts were in my head and I felt it's that somatic illness. I felt that what was happening mentally was affecting physically. And that's something that we need to pay attention to because when your mind is not right, the body cannot function the way it's supposed to function. So even this is why grades drop and people end up getting pain, pains in their joints and headaches over and over again. So that brought me into the field. And so what I did is I interviewed close to 900 men trying to figure out how men think um, their process. And I wrote the first book, which is called His Heart, Her Voice, and advocating for men because, which is strange, right? But advocating for men because in that process, although I was trying to find out what I did wrong, what I found out is how much pain men go through that is not seen. The, the system that we have, whether it is the legal system and everything is so anti-male. There is a prejudgment that in like for domestic violence, that it is the, the woman who is the victim. And I found there's so many men. When it comes to child support, 
we are thinking the woman is, the, the man is paying the woman. When we think about single parenting, we're thinking about the woman, the, the housing system, the social services, all of that is geared more towards the female than the man. The man. And that pushed men into states of depression, heightened suicide, and so many other things. Because now, although they, they have this burden on them, because if the marriage ends, more than likely the man is going to leave the home. So he has to most time be paying for one place that he's living and still play, paying for all the other stuff. So that kind of stress, that financial stress, physical stress, emotional, and not having an outlet, because what I find when men come together, it is more about bragging. When women come together, they cry. Oh my gosh, this is what he did. And they, there's a support system, but I didn't see that support system in doing the research with the men. I saw men, unless they're really, really close, because the other man will say to the man, man up, man, come on, you know, just get over her and move on. And crying, I, I found that men were not crying. Um, they would cry privately or they would cry for the, the passing of their mom, not necessarily for anything else. So they were not using this therapeutic process of crying that helps us both mentally and emotionally to be able to deal with whatever we're, is happening. So that's kind of how the entrance into this I am a psychologist, I'm a family therapist. I have a doctoral degree in organizational psychology. I'm a hypnotherapist, sex therapist. So what I've done is try to find what pain points that are out there and speak on it. I get a lot of negative feedback when I talk about the pain men are experiencing. I mean, a lot, a lot. Women, although I say men, go through these things too, the women are not hearing the two part of it. It seems like there, there is a need to just pull all of this pain and say, we're the only ones. It's not that. There's some men who are being beaten by their wives. And because this, the community and system is not geared to have that conversation, he is going to take that and, and just kind of suck it up. So that kind of is one of the reasons, you know, we've been, I've been in private practice for 13 years and do a lot with couples and full family. I have children, um, a lot of um, like adolescents, um, elementary school, because they're going through a really, really, really tough time. <laughs> really, really. That whole idea of middle school I call it the demon of middle school because those kids are going through a tough time. And, and high school used to be the focus where you think a lot of stuff is happening, but that transitional piece between elementary and high school, that middle school. So I do full family therapy, every member of the family we work with. That was, uh, so I just want to say like from the bottom of my heart, thank you for advocating for men's mental health because I feel very strongly um, that we're just, you know, not talked about nearly enough. Meanwhile, the the suicide rates of men is astronomical right now. And I'm glad we can finally have this conversation where this topic can come to light and 
just a little background on myself. So my parents divorced when I was like eight. So um, going into middle school, I can absolutely relate to that. When all those problems started, it was just like, well, why did mom and dad split? You know, it wasn't because of me. And going into high school, uh, I was 14 when I had my first unalive attempt. And again, it was one of those things where uh, guys don't cry, you know, rub dirt in it. It's fine. You know, we don't talk about mental health. There's no such thing as depression with men and so on and so forth. And I lived in a household where my dad is now 52 and he's in that generation where unfortunately mental health just wasn't spoken about. It wasn't. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about that kind of stuff. So I never was able to express any of the things that I felt. Um, I, I can probably say that I have no problem crying um, as a man. You know, I right. encourage guys to talk about what they're going through because I know so many guys in my life who still try to rub dirt and still trying to quote unquote man up and be strong it's like you can be strong and still talk about what you're going through man like I feel like while we can have this conversation uh and you mentioned something that uh one of my uh former guests um or not former but a couple guests ago um she's also a men's uh mental health advocate and she always expresses how she gets attacked by other women because like you said, they don't hear the two part. Men mm-hmm. go through this too. It's like, oh, well, you're saying men, you're saying men. It's like, listen, men are killing themselves. Yes. And metaphorically every single day. And this conversation needs to happen. And um, correct me if I'm wrong here. I, I want to hear your viewpoint on this when I when I bring it up. In that journey of equality, right, between men and women, like you're a human, I'm human, and we should be treated the same, right? I feel that men have been buried while we're trying to uplift women at the same time as trying to put them in the same quote unquote level as men in a mental, emotional, and spiritual standpoint uh, in society. I feel like we've gone the complete opposite direction of equality, you know, like, yeah, I totally agree. I think in an effort to, equalize we we're tilting the scale a lot and and there are times where when i think on women understand this more when they have sons i think when women think that men don't go through it too they're thinking about the men that they're dating or married to but they're not thinking about their sons and when you think about your son who you know who just got slapped and spit on by his wife or the woman that he's living with and the police come and the police take him it, it speaks differently because every uh, there are some bad men there are some bad women and i think in our effort to equalize the scale we're doing a disservice and we we're losing the men we're losing the the voice of the man a silent man is troublesome to me. It's really concerning to me. And when uh, when we say this, when we as women feel that we have achieved because we have silenced the male pop- population, that is crazy because we have that logical and emotional piece 
the, the woman's language is mostly emotional, not 100%. Those of us who can you know, go back and forth and the man is logic. We were made to be able to bring that together because the man needs to learn some more emotion and the woman needs to learn some more logic. But I think in, even in the workplace and in, in some of those things, we're seeing, we're, while we're pushing for the education of the woman, we don't mind the ignorance of the man. And I, the, going to college and the only time or one of the places that you find a lot of men would be in the prison, in the prison system. And I, I think those of us who have the opportunity to in influence the children and, and the, the boys and girls that's coming up, we need to say that you need to fight for your next place and you don't get it because you're a man and you don't get it because you're a female, you get it because you're qualified. It, it, that next level has to be genderless and it has to be based on the qualification. I meet the qualification so I get that space. But I think we're, we're going the place where there was a time that it was male dominance and in an effort to, to shift that, we, we have, we're going really, really fast, the female dominance, but we need to have shared dominance. We, we need to be able to do this together. And I think now we're doing something that is really crazy. And, and the, the alpha man is going to survive. That's the man who's going to be loud and he's going to be strong and he's going to be aggressive. But the beta man who is around he is going to, I'm going to get into trouble for this. It's easy to feminize him. And I'm not talking, I'm not talking about homosexuality or anything like that. Um, for him to continue to doubt his ability to lead and doubt his self-worth. And he cannot make decisions without conferring with his wife or his mo mother. I think we're normalizing that and it's going to bite us in the butt right. sooner or later. Um, I, I definitely think that the the provider trait of, of a male, and obviously not saying that women can't be that too, because women can absolutely be the provider. But like you said, we need to have that sense of balance between the two. You know, uh, women are statistically more emotional than men, like you said, and men bring the logical part. You know, obviously it's not the same in every case. You know, there are men that are more emotionally charged than they are logical. Mm -hmm. It happens. But uh, you know, we're we're trying to phase out that mentality of the nuclear family, of the the provider mentality of the men, where it's like, oh, well, it's not okay to think this way as a man. And like you said, feminize them. And while that's happening, it, you know, like you said, it's it's counteracting anything that we're trying to do. It's increasing those those suicide numbers. It's increasing the conversation of men aren't equal to women or men can't go through what women go through uh, from a mental standpoint. And you touched on it earlier with the conversation of, of courts and child support. And that whole system is, I think, completely broke because mm -hmm. I grew up with single parents and watched my dad get beaten quite literally by the system. And my mom took advantage of that system, unfortunately. And um, you know, there there are so many cases where that happens, where the men are taking care of those kids, but the woman is still getting child support. Um, yeah. There was yeah. a stand-up that Chris Rock did, um, 
I think a couple months ago where he was talking about, um, I think child support custody of his kids or something. And, you know, this is a millionaire and this is a guy who is very well known in the community. And the courts were saying, oh, well, can you, you have to provide proof that you have a house for these kids, a bed, a full refrigerator. And this is a millionaire we're talking about. Right. Yeah. Can we yeah. imagine what what the blue collar standard male has to go through with that? And I feel mm -hmm. like that's a conversation uh, so many don't want to have or aren't ready to have. Yeah, and and that's why you get the pushback because they're the ch the children they need to be supported, but a, the woman is not a good uh, the best parent because she's female. There is you know I I don't see people coming in and evaluating. Okay, is the dad the best? When they were together, the the dad may have been the one who watched dishes, took the children to school, did the homework. And the, all of that. But when the relationship is broken, now it is just assumed that the woman is the better parent. And it is so unfair. So there are some men who, who are not connected to their children, not because they're bad, but because that's a way to hurt the man. So the woman would keep the children away. And, and so the man now has to adjust to this. And to, to the narrative that he's just a sperm donor and all the other things that, the negative things that we say. But again, when we put these men as our sons, that narrative changes. We have to know for those of us who have sons that somebody is going to be assessing um, their worth based on their gender. And that's, it's not, it's not good. Obvious situation, I'm not saying that they're not there are men who are not taking care of their children. There are. But there are women who are not taking care of their children who are not there. So can we have that conversation and say the parents who are not taking care of their children need to be reprimanded, need to go through the system, need to go through that, as opposed to saying that a man, if you ask anyone, when the picture that comes to mind when you say child support, you, it's a picture of the woman getting money from the from the husband. Yep, that is that's a picture that's in our mind. Right, and it's and it's nine times out of ten in that situation too, regardless of the involvement or non-involvement of that of that father. And yeah. one of the things I always say is, people are so ready to talk about toxic fatherhood, toxic fathers. Okay, um, I have a severely toxic mother who I don't have a relationship with. Can we have that conversation or? You know, and it's just like, oh, well, you can't talk about that. Toxic mothers aren't a thing. It's like, it's, it's very, very much a thing. I know a lot of them other than my own, you know? And again, like I said, I feel like in this whole journey of trying to make both parents equal, both, both sexes equal, we've, like you said, gone the complete opposite way. And we see it in every single possible scenario when the women are favored over the men. Mm-hmm. And that's, we have to be, we have to equalize it because it's not doing us any good. And it's when, in my practice, when I'm talking to women, like next weekend, we're taking some couples, we have a couple's retreat and we're taking them away. And we also do a couple of retreats that people, people who are engaged or people who are dating exclusively to really test whether or not you want to marry that person. So it's four days of, 
showing you who you're going to get married to and at the end seeing if you still want to marry um, that person. But when we talk to women about tapping into your femininity, I promise you, they don't know what it is. I say to the tap into your femininity because I don't have to be aggressive. I don't have to be like a man to be respected. I don't have to be like a man. I don't have to shout like him or scream like him or whatever it is. I can get things done. I can affect change in my femininity. But Chris, a lot of women, when I say that, they're like, so what exactly is that? Right. Because it's lost. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> the you know, masculine it's all a matter of, uh, I feel like social media plays a lot in that too. And it's just yeah. like, oh, well, uh, when we think of whatever's mentality of how women should act, oh, well, we're not going to be like them. We're going to be this, this, and this. It's like, listen, like nobody's telling you how to act, but like, like you said, how they don't even know what that means. Like in 2023, and the world is crazy. I mean, let's let's call it for what it is. Like this this world is out of control right now. And mm-hmm. I I just feel like there's there's so many words and so many labels that are thrown around and aren't like the proper terminology for those situations. It's just like one thing is not like the other. What you're claiming that society is trying to do to you is not at all the case. And um, I never knew the couples retreat was a real thing. So that's that's really cool. That's, that's yeah, a it's a real cool. yeah, it's a real thing because there's sometimes the couples are not getting along. Um, so we are, this one is a reconnection um, retreat, and then we have ten couples that we're going to take. We rented a mansion in Orlando, and we're going to take them and walk them through. So they get to do rather than once a week therapy they're going to have this four days of staying with me and doing some group work, doing some individual work, really stripping. It's really intense um, from the time that they get there. So couple therapy is really, really important and it works really, really well. There's sometimes I take couples on a 21 day surgical journey. I call it the surgery because what we need is to detach from everything else and focus on the relationship. So 21 days, um, looking at your phone once a day, I, I control everything that's happening. What's happening in the morning? What do you do? What do you say? How do you reconnect? Because getting divorced is really easy. Staying married, staying married is the work. And um, I don't believe in irreconcilable differences. I think every difference, you can, you can at the, the end of the day say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. But the differences outside of um, physical um, abuse, everything else is can be fixed. And come 2024, we're going to be launching the school for husband and wives because that's the thing that nobody, we do not go to school to be parents. Right. We don't go to school to be spouses. We don't know what to do. We think two people get together in in a in a home and so they are in some magic dust that happens and boom they don't need to know how to do it so when we walk you through we do pre-engagement we, we do pre-engagement engagement counseling we do marital counseling we do spouse selection process kind of figuring out 
the type. That's why I have so many degrees because I believe in the research. I believe that you should not get married because you're in love. I think love is if I cannot sign a contract when I am high on cocaine, I should not be sign a contract when I'm high and intoxicated with with um, serotonin and, and dopamine and those other things. If you look at the brain when you're in love, you cannot tell the difference. And you guys can research it. You cannot tell the difference between a brain that is in love and a brain that is intoxicated with cocaine. It, it, looks, it looks the same. So when we, and this is what people say, the chemistry between us is really good, which is real. It's the, those chemicals that is causing you to feel a certain way. And then what happens is it drops. And you're like, you don't love me anymore. That's when the work is supposed to happen because relationship work, not because of how you feel, which is going to come from those chemicals, but what you know, just like you get to a job and you realize after a while, oh, this job is not good, but it's paying me $200,000. What we try to do, find a way to work through it. And that's one of the things, the irreconcilable differences that people talk about. It's just an easy way for a lot of us to be able to say, I don't want to do this anymore. And I think we should be honest to say, I don't want to do this anymore. But if you have a really good therapist, someone who has done the work um, to help build uh, intimacy and communication and resolve conflict, even something as small as your towel, drop, dropping your towel, on the floor after you take a shower can be a reason people get divorced. You know, it's, uh, I really appreciate you kind of like reiterating why you have so many degrees, why you have done so much work because you're always willing to learn and research and mm -hmm. um, to kind of touch on the divorce thing, you know, I, I don't have experience on that, but I have two uh, parents that divorced when I was very young and watched it you know, implode and explode uh, growing up. And I feel like I 100% agree with you how easy it is to just say, I want a divorce and uh, you don't want to put in the work. And I feel like that's just a lot of relationships in general nowadays, you know, like you said, outside of physical abuse, everything can be worked on. And I feel like most people are so quick to just call it quits instead of like, what needs to be worked on and i can understand if you're trying to put in that work and it just doesn't work out that you know that's that's part of life you know if something mm -hmm. fails and you tried everything then it's time to move on but i feel like so many people are at that mentality where uh, i guess they have that playbook it's like oh well if this doesn't work out then i have this to go to and I, i've seen yeah I, i've yeah. experienced that unfortunately even in, even in terms of infidelity. So you have the people who are just reckless. Um, I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about people who will genuinely love each other. And so I look at, I'm going to get into trouble for this one too. I look at infidelity as a headache to the body. It's a symptom that something is wrong. And one of the worst things that we can do for a headache is just take Tylenol and not figure out what's the root cause of it because we'll be con continually taking those the pills so that we could we don't want the pain but we're not looking at the root cause and what I say to couples before you decide that you're going to end the relationship because of infidelity 
sit down and figure out where did this come from? Where did this come from? And, and for women, it's a little bit easier to forgive and kind of reconcile for men. It's tough. I don't know. The man would cheat. <laughs> and if his wife cheats, it's, the relationship is over. So the man will cheat, the woman will forgive him and continue with the relationship. But we're doing some work on the brain to figure out what's going on in the man's mind because the man will have a child with someone outside of his wife. The, the wife can also forgive him and help him rear that child. And when it's the other way around, the man is really, is really close to impossible for the man to, to accept um, that. So the forgiveness part of it is going in and doing the work for people who are not married, do the work before and figure out what do I like? And here's the thing, Chris, if you have a type, a type of woman, a type of person that you are attracted to all the time and you've tried three or four of that type, what's wrong is the type. You have to change the type and go totally outside of that because if you tried it once, twice, three times and it's failing, then the type needs to be adjusted. And I, I, people don't like to hear that because like I, I want someone who's this, this, and this, but you've tried that for four times and found that it has not worked. And now it's opening up because that's what the logical thing would do. This is not an emotional thing. This kind of person makes me feel good, but it's not sustainable. So if it's not sustainable, why am I going to do this? I'm just signing up for another broken heart. So relaxing the rules and the type a little bit um, and going outside of that, we found that that is really helpful. And there's something and involved in the village, not the people who are just going to be saying, oh, yeah, she's cute. Yeah, I need to see. I want you to be with that person. But doing what the, some of the older people did in arranged marriages, where you ask the question, are you a saver or are you a spender? Are you a morning person or are you a night person? You know, do, you, do you want children and how many children? Having those real things and falling in love after. Really doing your due diligence in terms of the compatibility piece. And what are deal breakers? One of the things that happens with relationship is that people will have a deal breaker, but then they fall in love and they say, oh, no, okay, I'm not worried about that. But I promise you by year two or three, that deal breaker is the reason why they're not staying together because they ignored it because right. they were, the chemistry was so good that it blinded them. Remember I said you can't sign a, a contract? it's going to pop up again. You know, it's it's very interesting when you look back at like my grandparents' generation or I really wouldn't say my parents' generation because I feel like they're two completely different eras of dating and relationships. I've always found it interesting how these couples stayed together like 60, 70 years. And yeah. you look at back then and like you said, how how they went about how they were compatible and the deal breakers were a thing, but that chemistry was there. And it's just kind of like a, I love that person for who they are and can look past the deal breaker. Now we look at dating. It's just like, Oh, well, I have an app to tell me, Oh, we're compatible. We're not compatible. You know what I mean? 
And so many people, I feel like in today's generation, just don't make their intentions clear. And, you know, they either play games or it's just like they say they want one thing. And then when that thing comes to them, it's like, oh, well, I don't want that. And they don't make their intentions clear about their dating. And, you know, like we mentioned earlier, it's so easy to just swipe right, swipe left. And I feel Mm -hmm. like people in today's dating world are always swiping to see who's the next best guest uh, candidate. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just wrote, I I just wrote the second. Yeah. It's called from hello to I do. And I think people label too quickly. I think there has, I think the relationship has to require the next stage. I think we label too quickly. So, and, and the dating process, we, um, we're getting too serious. We're getting too serious too soon. And we're labeling things before we've experienced it. We're asking to be exclusive before we actually know the person. And so if you think again, this is my scientific mind. It's like, okay, yeah, I know you initially when someone is dating to, to, to hear that I'm not the only person that you're dating. We have made that as, okay, so I'm done. I'm not going to go with you. But what that ha- what happens, why that is a good thing is in that initial, I'm talking about, I just met somebody, I kind of like them, I want to go out with them. There's no commitment or anything like that. That allows you to compare. If I go to Walmart and I go down, down the cereal aisle, if I only see Frosted Flakes, guess what I'm taking home? Frosted Flakes. It may give me cavities, it may, but... And I feel an obligation to go all the way with Frosted Flakes because I've already said it. I've told everyone. But if I go down the aisle and I see some Frosted Flakes and I see some Cheerios and I see some other things, now I have a choice. And that initial part of dating has to be a choice. So now I can read the back of the box and see how many calories is in this, how many, whatever, and make a choice based on the comparisons that I have. When I've made the choice, then even then, I am not labeling, this is my girlfriend, this is my boo, I am still in that getting to know you stage. And as I'm getting in, in, as I'm in that getting to know you stage, I'm asking the question, I know why all my last relationship ended. And so that becomes the questions I'm looking I'm quote unquote testing to see whether you qualify to get into the girlfriend space. And even at that point, we're not talking about marriage yet. We're just, we're all in that getting to know you. I am not making any promises. It really, really scares me when I see people labeled too too quickly. So here's something that may make you laugh. Um, one of the things that I've done is speed dating. I've, I've facilitated speed dating and all of that and I what I do right now and I haven't done it with um, yeah I have done it with a man where they're on their date and they have the earpiece in their ear see how you can't see my earpiece a lot because it's right there (laughs) and so I'm hearing what they're saying and um, especially this would only be like date one and two one and two once you kind of get in that space it's more the women because we have, and they cannot send any text messages 
without sending it to me. Because there's something, especially for the female, we're just feeling he's mine. And we, he went out, he took me to Starbucks, you went to Starbucks, first day Starbucks. And you're like, are you seeing other people? And if he says, yes, you're a dog. So now I'm, I have to be in the air, calm down, take a breath. Um, this one person sent me a text message because she's like, um, after the first, after the second date, he didn't talk to her for three days and you're ghosting me and all of that. And like, you're not in that position yet. You are not the girlfriend. You have no right to his time, right? There has not been any commitment. So if we, if we begin to look at and let one stage in this dating process require the next one and nothing should happen nothing should be assumed without a conversation every transition we're making when we're making from where we're coming from casually dating to exclusive we're going to have a conversation hey you know what this has been good for me has it been good for you can we just see what it will feel like with us just dating each other exclusively there's no commitment you know you really like the person and not for religious reason, you want to stay away from the sexual commitment too quickly, only because not for religious reason or whatever, it causes you to make, especially if the sex is good, you'll be forgetting all your, your deal breakers, throwing it out the window. Right. So if you want to solidify the relationship so that it, it, it can stand the test of time, you need to, you need to do the work before you make those commitments. So I think there's a pressure, whether it's social media, and that's the other thing. Put me up in social media. It's, it scares me because I'm married now and no one knew I am the, the most public, private person ever because I use social media for business and I did not put anything on social media until the week of my, my wedding. And the reason for that is because I don't want the pressure right. of if we broke up, then somebody has all of this to say. So people just started dating and they changed their status in a relationship with. No, because then people can see that you repartnered 10 times for the year and it affects your, your, your credibility. So just a process, a, a selection process, I think is really important. I definitely appreciate the, the variety uh, part of the conversation we, when you brought up how the frosted flakes like if that's the only thing there that's what you're going to choose but then you start adding in more and it's just like okay I'm going to get to know each and every one of you first uh, which leads me kind of to a question do you feel like people don't get to know each other first before they make it exclusive like do you think that's a problem like I feel most relationships end fairly quickly because of, you know, you don't know that person that you make exclusive. Yeah, and I think, the, if, especially if you find someone who's fine and they check all the boxes, you just want to capture them um, really, really quickly. But for the person who wants longevity, they have to, before you put a label of, yeah, let's be exclusive, you need to know. And that, and the whole dating is collecting data. So you have to have enough data that you can analyze and be able, and you can have your own process. You don't have to tell anybody about it. You have to know, okay, yeah, if they do this, this, this. There are some serial datas 
the, especially in the female, again, I'm getting in trouble with the female, but there's sometimes it's Saturday night, I'm hungry, I want to dress up, I want to go out. And so um, that whole process, so when I'm working, when I am working with some of the single people I'm working with, this is just me, um, I'd say nobody needs, the man does not need to pay for you, pay for your dinner or pay for anything until you're in a relationship. It's not because you're female that this, there's an obligation to that you're entitled to it. it. The only time that is an entitlement is when, and it's not even an entitlement at that point. The whole mindset is, I get you, you get me. But again, for those of us who are female, we think you better be, you better feel lucky that I say, said yes to take you out. And so they go to the restaurant. Even yesterday, I was hearing that go to the restaurant, order the most expensive thing, take a doggy bag for their children or someone else. I even heard someone went on a date and the guy had this really nice restaurant that he was going to take her on the first date and she came with all her children. And he said he was nice. <laughs> that was my expression. What? And she came with three children. And oh, when he saw no. it, he said he was really nice. He went to the pizza, he went to a, a pizza shop and ordered pizza and they all ate and it was fun and she went home and he was like, nah, never again. Never again. But <laughs> never, never again. I'm not making these things up. So it's it's balancing that out. And the person, when you, if you go on a date and you see the female, especially the first data collecting opportunity, it's like, no, I got this. When if she does that, her mindset is somewhere else. Because those things, those feelings of entitlement is something where a, a woman can be working in McDonald's, which is a beautiful thing. I love the people working in McDonald's. Go out with a man who's working in McDonald's too and then be totally mad because he can't afford the steak. <laughs> All right? And so it, it, we need to level that up. We really, really need to level that up. And Part of it is coming again because we don't have a structure. We don't have um, we don't have guidance, any guidelines in terms of how we do this dating thing, and we're winging it. We're winging it. You know, uh, you said you had a comment earlier when uh, uh, when you said like respect each other's time and everything, right? And I had an experience where I went on a date with a young woman. I think I was about maybe 23, 24 years old, and we went out to to Chili's. Um, and she was on her phone the whole time, um, not exaggerating. Uh, if I ever had a conversation with her, it would just like be very brief. And she was on her phone the whole time. And it's like, okay, uh, my first thought was like, you know, maybe there's an emergency going on and I don't know the situation. But then it got to where I was trying to get to know her and trying to have a conversation with her. And she barely looked up, like maybe once or twice. And, you know, uh, maybe some people that tune into this episode might kind of just give me like the side, side eye or roll their eyes or something, but I paid for my own and left. I, you know, I, I know that may come off rude to some, but like you said, the respect my time kind of thing. And I feel like that entitlement uh, mentality, um, I feel like it's a really big thing that not a lot of people talk about. And again, like we were talking about society norms, 
oh, well, the man's supposed to pay for a state. The man's supposed to do this. The man's supposed to do that. And as a man, I could say I have no problem paying for the first date. But like you said, I feel like the entitlement conversation is definitely something that is a problem because I, I think the McDonald's thing that you mentioned was a very good example of that, of we both make the same amount of money. We both work in the same place. And you go to a five-star restaurant where it's like $40 a plate and you expect him to pay for you and him plus maybe drinks. Like that's a hundred dollar mm-hmm. meal for people that work at McDonald's. Um, I feel like not enough people, like you said, respect that time. It's like I'm putting time aside of my schedule, which may or may not be busy, which is irrelevant, uh, to make sure that you have a great night with somebody that you're potentially interested in. So I I, I just wonder how you break that mentality because I feel like that's that's a society norm that nobody dares like trudge upon it's like oh well men have to pay first date that's just a thing that's always a thing how do you break that mentality how do you even go about breaking that mentality i think that i think the men um need to talk about it because um over the weekend another man was saying that he was on a date with um a young lady and this was in a really nice restaurant and she spent the entire time talking about her ex, all the stuff that her ex did. And he just like, he, he tried to interrupt it and bring in, in another conversation and she's going on and on and on. I think it, it would be broken when men begin to say, hey, let me interrupt you for a minute. We're sitting here, this right here. I hope you never do it to anyone. I'm about to leave. I'm going to pay for my meal and I'm about to leave. But this right here is not cool. And I don't think you need to do it to anyone else. So that that kind of caring enough to confront. And it's not aggressive, but he has to kind of maintain his cool or whatever. But I think from what I, I, I have, I have some um, programs on YouTube that's called Man Cave Conversation, where I go into the man cave and I'm the only female and I'm talking to the men. But in talking to the men, what I'm hearing is like some of them need to leave and they're not saying anything. I think it's really important for them to be able to say to the woman, hey, I'm not your ex. I am, you know, I'm here. My intention was to cause you to have a good time. My intention was to do all of this. But right now I'm out. Right. I'm out because this is not going the way. And this is the first date. If this is the first date, I'm really kind of putting in there, hey, I hope you don't ever do this to anyone else because it's not cool. And by the way, I'm paying for mine and giving my tip. The rest of it is you. Now, she may curse you out and and all of that, but the message would have been given. And I think it's important. That's that's the male voice. That's the voice that's that's absolutely needed because the man will walk away and what he would do is he wouldn't say anything. Right. And she would go on, she'll go on social media and like, I went out with this and, you know, blank me blank. And, you know, this is what he did. He left me in, in the, and not tell the whole story. And I'm saying, I'm not saying that you need to do the same thing, but I don't hear men saying to the, the girl that they're with in, those, in that time, hey, this is not cool at all. 
had a conversation cool. with my dad uh, about this a couple of months ago. Uh, basically the same situation. I'm like, is there ever a situation where you wouldn't pay for first date? And again, that generation mentality of men are supposed to pay every single time. And that's that's the mentality he has. Like, there's never any half. There's I can provide for her. So I'm going to provide for her mentality. And I, I just feel like that mentality is just so heavy in the male community that it's so hard to speak out of, out to it because, you know, like I mentioned my experience and like you mentioned the, the gentleman from McDonald's experience, it's so hard just to have that conversation with us guys in that situation because not only is social media a really big thing and unfortunately I feel like it plagues a lot of the potential for relationships or just like uh, having conversations of uh, possibly having a relationship with somebody. So I feel like for, in, in my experience, uh, it's so hard to speak out to that stuff because we're labeled as X, Y, Z. And yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, but it's, um, it's uh, I, I think it's really important because I remember the time that stuff that I did went viral. <laughs> the hashtag was in defense of men and they're going to come and they're going to come at you. I mean, they come at you with, but for me, based on what I do, I really believe the truth is the truth. I'm biologically a female, and I thank God that I'm able to look at life. And, and, and there's sometimes that we're wrong. And, and this is someone who has been hurt by men. But I am so very careful to generalize about generalizing. The situations that I've gone through, it was not all men and everybody and all of that. It's just specific to what this is. And I have to be able to do that. And I think the people who are speaking out, the men who have the guts to be able to do it, need to do it, knowing that it's gonna, there's gonna be you know, repercussions for, from it. But it's not, if it was the other way around, and, and you have to think, we, we grew up, our, our, the, the culture, the, the system that we grew up on, it's your princess, you are, you know, all that, and a man is going to take care of you. That's what most of us grew up understanding. And the man is like, don't cry, you know, be, be rugged, take it on the chin, you know, all of those kinds of stuff. So it's different. We have been reared to be taken care of. But even as we're seeking that equality that we talked about earlier, it's so interesting that it doesn't seem to flow in the social interactions that we're having. In the social interaction, we, we as women, we want to keep that femininity and take care of me. In the workplace, we want to be, you know, macho and be the, the masculine energy. It's all around, we want to do that when it comes to the court system and the children. But when it comes to dating and relationship, we want to get into that space of take care of me. And it's amazing to do that. But I think, to be very honest, that you have to earn that. It has to be, we have to be at a certain place. I don't know you from anywhere. We're going on a date. And that first time of eating, you're going to choose what you want to eat. You have to think, I am going to pay for my meal. Now, you can do, you can offer, like, you know, when I went on my first date, I was like, I got this. 
And my now husband says, no, I got you. But it's just, and then you hear men in the man cave talk about it, that it's just so beautiful for her to offer, although they, most of the time they don't accept it. But the fact that she's for his, you know, if it's his birthday or whatever, it's like, I got this. He may still insist, but just that gesture that I don't feel entitled. I don't feel because you asked me out that I have to pay. Right. I think that's something we need to, if we want the equality, we have to take it across the board, even in the dating. Right. And yeah. And I, and I feel like um, I have ran into situations where uh, I would just, you know, assume the bill, you know, just again, that's how I was growing up with that mentality was men are supposed to do that. That's what we're supposed to do. And now that we can sort of kind of, I don't want to say we can definitely have that conversation yet, but we're, we're easing there a little bit um, where women are comfortable with saying, no, I'll take my half or I'll pay for my drink. And if you want to get the meal or something um, I've had situations where it was just like, you know, we can go half on this and not entitled to, Oh, well, you're the man, so you're going to pay for everything. Um, now, I also have ran into that coin where it was expected that I was supposed to pay the whole thing. And I have felt very uneasy about that conversation with her because she basically put it that I'm the man I'm supposed to pay for it. And I never pushed back on it because I never thought it was something that men could push back on. You know, like, again, and it kind of starts yeah. with us where we're not having that conversation. So it's not a normalized thing. And it shouldn't be normalized. It should be a normal thing. You know what I mean? It shouldn't, yeah. But I, but this, again, would be the conversation. That I found, I've worked with three of the, the, the clients that I've worked with, um, walking them through, they were totally opposed to online dating and just showed them how beautiful that can, can be if you followed some of the instructions. But during COVID, when people could not go out, and people with developing relationships, you have some of the strongest relationship happening there because they spent so much time talking and sharing. There was no place. People were um, in their homes and synchronizing Netflix, the show on Netflix, press play together and have their own popcorn. And what I found during that time, people talked, they talked about everything. They knew about the most embarrassing time because there was no outlet. Uh, there was not the distraction of the movies. And the movies is one of the worst places to go when you're trying to know someone because right. the focus is on the screen there. But when you, what people ignore is spending the time, whether it's on the phone, um, talking or FaceTiming and really having those conversations. I think we jump too quickly to be going out and then, Again, labeling. During that, the pandemic, people, and so those people, I was able to walk them through some of that process. And they, they're, one is engaged and two is they're married, but they spent the time to talk, to talk. One person is living and was living on a boat and he shared on living on a boat. He shared, um, she shared that she, children you know she has grown children and he's like well i'm not trying to share you with children i mean the kind of conversation that people would be afraid of afraid to have about um when we do 
premarital, we, I want you to talk about your credit score. I want you to talk about your finances. Um, am I, what am I going to inherit if I, we do get married? Am I, how much debt are you in? How many right. people are coming from you? Sickness, illness. I am not for someone to divulge that information too soon. This is not what you have on the first, second, and third. When you decide to be exclusive, because exclusive means we're getting to know each other better with other distractions and everything else. We've cho chosen frosted flakes, and that's where we're going. So at that point, it's when you decide to say, well, I'm suffering with this, I had this, and whatever. Prior to that, the person has not earned the right to some of that information until you get to that place because you're moving maybe to getting being in a relationship and long-term. So when it comes to secrets and sharing secrets, I'm all for sharing secrets, but not, not at the beginning, beginning, um, unless there is some major thing, let's say um, sexual changes or sexual orientation, what, you know, you want to, some of those things you want to put up front only because the other per the person is getting to know you with the hope of going a certain place. And I know this might surprise you, Chris, but I don't think that all secrets have to be told. I think there are some things that um, if it does not have an impact on the relationship, that it's not something, it's not a blanket thing. We can it's not a one size fits all. It's something that you would have to work through and say, okay, yes, what's the benefits of this? How would it affect the relationship? And the closer you get, there's some things that can be left for, I'm not for um, major secrets in terms that can affect the relationship being kept until marriage. But I think that there's something that in my practice, what I've seen, there's some things that makes no sense in right. sharing it. Mm -hmm. I wish I can tell you one of them, one of the things that it may be surprising, I know your guest is going to be saying, who is this woman? <laughs> but um, let's say in the, the dating, during the time of being exclusive, like the, we, the week when we decided that we will be exclusive, I slept with someone. Right? Um, now, again, we're looking at the value of that. If I share that with you in the relationship, why, why am I sharing it? What does it do to the relationship, right? Because we're not in that space of being exclusive or we're not in that space there. Um, and so there's some things, again, it will be something that you will work with your therapist or try to figure out what's the value. This is not something that would affect the relationship. Like if you find out Later on, you're going to be like, what in the world? Now, if you, if you slept with my best friend and he's still my best friend, yeah, you need to, to <laughs> share that. But right. there's some secrets that need to remain secret because they, they would not benefit the relationship in sharing. I hope, I hope people understand that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so my question, is there such thing as oversharing? Like, uh... Absolutely. Yeah. Like for example, yeah. uh, somebody like myself who kind of has a pretty traumatic uh, past, you know, like with relationships or the relationship with my mom or anything. Um, so, do you think there's a such thing as like 
oversharing your past. Like, uh, for example, if somebody's interested in like why I'm a mental health advocate or why I do podcasting or whatever it is, do you think there is a such thing as telling too much too soon when it when it comes? Yeah. To yes, definitely because you you don't know where the other person is at, and the truth about that is they're not the therapist and their capacity for that kind of information might be very small and you do more damage. That's why there's a separation. Um, you have this intimate relationship and then you still have a therapist and there's, there's overload. I, I really believe in like what the doctors do. The doctors have, um, when you go, they say, they give you a bottle of Benadryl and on the prescription, it says one teaspoon per day or every four hours. If you drink the, whole, the entire bottle at the same time, it's going to kill you. But we have to understand dosage. And the maturity of the relationship is going to require more levels of, of sharing. But in the beginning, and... And the question then is like, why am I saying all of this? I want them to know all of that kind of stuff. But we have to always look for the value. So what I do with clients is I have, let's say Chris is dating Sharon. We have, we have three people. We have three entities there. We have Chris, we have Sharon, we have the relationship. So we externalize the relationship. And so what we do, staying on the phone during dinner helps Sharon but it hinders the relationship. So externalizing it where you're saying, if I pour all this information, I share this information, how does it affect the relationship? Right. Does it cause it to grow? It, it has no effect. And you wanted to have some, the sharing should always be impactful. So especially deep sharing. I want to tell you this because, and you have to answer what the because is. Right. If not, you just have to wait until it's it's warranted. I I had a really tough time. My MP seemed to be going on tough time dating because people thought that they were going to dinner with a therapist, and nothing is more stressful than trying to have a good time and somebody telling you their problems. Right. So yeah. Oh, so no. yes, you want to measure. Um, how much you talk, how much you I, I like that. Um, I think for me, I, I've, I've experienced where I felt like maybe I shared too much and I don't want to say scared away, but I think like you said, people at a different stage. Um, so I do appreciate that piece um, because I feel like, again, social media being a thing, I feel like there's a such thing as oversharing and just uh, too much at, at, uh, at one time. And I feel like uh, many of us in my age group have a bad habit of oversharing our traumas and it being unintentional sometimes. Um, and I know for me, because I like to talk, if you, if you haven't already noticed, um, I, I like to talk and sometimes I, I feel, um, find myself oversharing sometimes um, in, in that realm. So for me, I feel like that it helps to be reminded that there are people at different stages in their life and not to overshare too much at one time because I feel I have done that before. Um, there is one thing um, that I kind of wanted to switch gears on because I, I felt like this was very interesting because I didn't know it was a thing. Um, the Christian in uh, Crisis Hotline. 
uh, was something that I read in your your bio. I kind of wanted to get a little more information on because obviously I, I've volunteered on the crisis hotline and know what that entails. So I, I wanted to um, want to know what what goes into helping people in a crisis state from a Christian standpoint. Like how does how does that process look for you? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting because I have a meeting with them in a little, little bit. I have a session with, with them in the next few minutes. Um, so the Christian in Crisis hotline was developed during the pandemic, and it was because we were seeing so many Christian leaders committing suicide. And um, so we, being a, a mental health advocate you want to just jump in there and help so we have about 20 something 23 people who um we have two categories we have screeners and we have the licensed therapists and what we do basically now the christian in crisis the christian part of it people we do not filter people through like what do you believe anybody can call but what we're saying that if you want someone to pray with you, you can get it there. So I train my staff not to do prayer first um, because I think in the Christian community, what we, we've done is that we said Jesus is the answer, but we're not waiting for the question. And we spiritualize everything. And some of the, the people who are hurting the most are the Christian people because they mask themselves uh, with their faith and not understanding that there is time that the, the, the Bible talks about healing and the healing has to come. The healing is not just physical healing, but mental healing as well. And so we don't just class, just come in the people, someone calls and I have a problem and we say, now let's pray for you. Um, prayer has to be requested. Someone has to say they have they, they want prayer. If they don't, we're just dealing with the mental health issue. We have people who um, want to commit suicide. We have a lot of people who are struggling with their faith. They may be homosexual and, and Christian and want to know if God's going to send you to hell and if people are going through grief. So what we do is the 90-10 rule is what my staff, staff has. The 90% is listening for 90% and talk for 10 10% because a lot of the people there, they come to their own conclusion. Um, they get the, their solution and they're talking it through and just having somebody who empathizes on the other side of the line. So we, where I train them, I do a lot of the training. We have a training staff and we, um, we're there. Our goal is to get you off the ledge. And once we get you off the ledge, we see if there are resources that we can um, get you to. It might be a church organization. We also offer two free sessions of therapy for anybody who wants it. But we have, this is something that we used to advertise. We don't advertise anymore. But we have probably about 30 or 40 um, people calling and getting on the website. So we're really taking it seriously now and, um, you know, getting grants and stuff. And the goal is to create um, a call center 
so that the calls can be answered and we, you know, we compensate. Right now we're 100% volunteer staff, but the idea the, is to be there. It's very, very interesting. Today I did a training for a company and I asked the people two questions. Who are you and how do you feel? And when I say, who are you, is who do you see in the mirror? And people tell me I'm a doctor or whatever. That's not what you see in the mirror. You, you may see a beautiful person, you know, eyes and everything else. How do you feel? Um, if you look at how our society is, and even social media, Facebook says, what's on your mind? But as we share, people are, are so insensitive to that. We don't have that. You can be walking down the street and someone say, hey, how are you doing? And before you, you can turn around and say, well, they're gone. So we provide a listening ear um, and, and we have some amazing, amazing staff um, that come on board. I think they like the training. I, I used to train every, every, every week. Now we do once a month. And like I said, I have a training staff because the piece that the church doesn't have is a clinical piece. They have the um, what is it? The pastoral counseling, and so what I bring to them is a clinical piece. So they're they're able to to kind of the things that we talked about that with anxiety, the things that we we talked about in terms of suicide. What do you do with that? How do you distinguish mental health and demon possession, which is something that's big in the church? Um, they either pray for everyone or they say everybody is mentally ill. But being able to make that distinction. So Christian in crisis is, is something that is growing. Our, my goal is to make it the, the Red Cross for mental health. So when the Red Cross will come in, if there's a storm and everything, the, men, the Red Cross will come in and they bring food supply and everything. And we will join them by giving the people mental health, um, walking them through. So the loss of their house, the loss of their whatever will be there to kind of help them with the mental health piece. So that's the CICH. That. Uh -huh. Yeah, I love that. Um, I, I think people, uh, I, I love the fact that uh, um, the crisis hotline lowered their number just to 988. I think that's phenomenal. Yes. Um, I myself have used it. Um, I know people who have used it and I've volunteered for it as well. Um, and I love that you mentioned that prayer has to be requested and everything, because I feel in this community and, and in my experience with uh, the mental health movement page I have on Facebook, um, I feel like a lot of people kind of are, are turned off to the religious yes. part of the yes. conversation because yes. of either past trauma or anything else for that matter. And for me, I, I've always said, you know, if if somebody asks for it, I feel like it's like, okay, that's that's fine. But I also feel like don't force it onto people. And I love, mm -hmm. I love the fact that you say that prayer has to be requested because it's a selfless, very selfless thing to do to be part of that crisis conversation and be a counselor mm -hmm. for it. Because I feel like you're you're a literal superhero who's doing it for the out of the kindness of your heart. So I, I do really appreciate the fact that you have that going because it's definitely not something. Uh, that people talk enough about how how much goes into doing those crisis hotlines. Um, yeah, it's it's a lot, and and we have 
We have to constantly be training and providing help for the counselors as well, because even when the queen um, passed away, we have people from all over the world who was like, I'm in a crisis. And for some reason, maybe because of the time difference, we have people who call after 12, between 12 and four or 5 a.m. That's where we get the majority of the calls where people are like, I'm in a crisis. You know, my husband just left. So it's, it's something that we're extremely proud of. Um, at one point, I'm being honest with you, I thought if I close my eyes, we'll tight, it will go away. Because when I started it, I did not know how big it would be. Um, there are different agencies that give our numbers out. And um, so training. So I'm really getting into, it was not something that I thought about, but getting grants and different things so that we can really have some people there full time um, being compensated for their time so that they'll be able to help. So that's the goal, to get these uh, grants and to get these people going, because CICH is not going anywhere. The hotline is not going anywhere. The people would not allow it. Right. Um, and just, uh, I, so I have two more two more questions for you. Um, I'll, I'll try to make them brief, because I know you said you have, uh, you have a meeting here shortly. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, tell us a little bit about your nonprofit. Well, that's the CICH. The nonprofit oh, okay. organization is the CICH. And then we have something else that's called Men of the Cloth that is also um, specifically for, for pastors. I, I travel a lot to, um, in fact, I just had got another call from um, South Africa. I travel a lot to Africa, Indian, Europe, and working with leaders, religious leaders, and I, it, this may sound weird, but I am working with them to to break the poverty barrier um, because I think people are so when when poverty is the is 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 on you or something that you are dealing with, your choices in life is huge. You you make choices and and build relationships that are not necessarily healthy. So. We, um, we help them, we do a lot of leadership training, helping them to stir up their gifts. What, what are you talented? Um, what are your talents? What's your gifts? I have a group on social media that is called um, Moving from Part-Time Coaching to Full-Time Coaching. And what we're doing is trying to get, there's so many, so much people making money out there. And we have found a system that is working, that is, that we're helping, we're helping a lot of people kind of figure out what do I have that would be able to help me to generate wealth. Right. So uh, yeah, so we're helping them with that as well. Yeah, that, uh, that's that's wonderful. Uh, like I said, I, I feel like it's a very selfless thing to for all the things that you're doing. And it's uh, appreciate you sharing with us. Um, mm -hmm. The final question I had for you, and I, I asked all my guests this because I feel like it's important to get every perspective. If you can change one thing in the mental health community, what would it be? Normalize men <laughs> um, going into therapy. I was in a session today in an organization and part of what they are going to get. Oh, can you still hear me? Yep, still hear you. Okay. One of the things that they would get is one hour of, I'm sorry, 30 minutes of sessions a session with me and one man looked like what 
I can't do therapy. Right. So just normalizing that I think would be really, really good. That would be the one thing I would change. I would make it normal for men to go to therapy. Absolutely agree. Uh, I think therapy has been the greatest thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, and like I said, I do appreciate you uh, advocating for men's mental health. I think it's uh, incredible that there are women out there willing to listen to us. Um, so at the end of every podcast, I like to read a quote, uh, just whatever uh, topic that we happen to be talking about. Do you have any quote that you live by or anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we close up here? Quote that I live by. What do I live by? I like to say to everyone that my the gift in me is for you. Take it. <laughs> Take it. The gift in me is for you. Everything that I learned, every place that I've been, it's it has purpose. But I don't know what you want. It's like I would not have met you if we didn't say, hey, you know, come on my podcast and talk. And prayerfully, people will benefit from that. So what's in my head is a blessing to the rest of the world. But it's only it only gives gives you value when you tap into it. Love that. Um, so the quote that I have is by Mr. Ar uh, Arthur Golden. Uh, adversity is like a strong wind. It tears away from us all, but the things that cannot be torn so that we see ourselves as we really are. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Um, like that. Before we close uh, today's session, um, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on social media. You can look for me. My name is spelled C-H-E-R-Y-L-L-A- Holmes, H-O-L-M-E-S, and that's on all social media platforms. Um, yes, all social media platforms. And if you want to call my office, the number to speak to me directly, the number is 646-653-9080. Awesome. Thank you so much again for being on here today. You're a wonderful guest. And, uh, a lot of information, a lot, a lot there. So thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. And for all of our listeners, thank you again for your support. Um, as always, be well and be gentle with yourselves. Until next time, take care and much love, guys.